What's up, FCA? How we doing? I uh, hope you are doing well. My name is Blake. I am uh, one of the pastors at LifePoint Church, which is about uh, 15, 20 minutes away from here in Seneca. And uh, yeah, that's me. So uh, I'll tell you what, it is a privilege. There we go. Oh. Check, check. Here we go. It is an absolute privilege to be here. Um, when your leadership says that they believe in prayer, they absolutely uh, believe in prayer. When I got here about, for about 15, 20 minutes, we prayed for you, so you have been prayed for before you ever got here. Um, uh, we prayed for the situation in Ukraine, and as I was sitting, I sat right over there, and uh, I was sitting over there, there was just this kind of weight um, that I felt. And so I just want you to know um, that it is an absolute privilege and an honor to be able to be here and to talk to you guys um, tonight. Normally, what a pastor would do uh, with this time right at the beginning was take the first three to five minutes to uh, tell a story or to uh, engage you in some way, to, to build some type of common ground or to draw you in. Um, we're not going to do that tonight. All right, uh, we're just going to get straight into the word. I've got a ton of stuff that um, I want to I want to talk about tonight, and we've, the worship's already been so good. They do a great job, don't they? The worship's already been so good, and we're prayed up. I think we're just ready to get into it. Yeah. All right. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one, and I want to talk this evening about change. About change. Who in here would say that they handle change well? Anybody? Handle change well? All right. Who would say that you do not handle change well? Okay, that's most of us, which is bad because the world is constantly changing, right? The world's changing. Everything's changing uh, all the time. At, you know, with the sake of sounding old, when I was literally sitting in your seat 20 years ago, all right, when I was at Clemson coming to FCA, um, we didn't even have smartphones, all right? There was no such thing as smartphones. Uh, I had my flip phone on my belt because I was cool like that. And uh, we, there was no social media, no smartphones. And you look in the last 20 years how much things, technology has changed and progressed. Uh, now, everybody's got that cell phone in your pocket. Everybody's on social media uh, doing their thing. In the short time, many of you have been at Clemson, the physical landscape of Clemson has changed, hasn't it? I mean, from Douthat to the new business school, if you look downtown, everything's being changed down there, everything's being uh, built. If you're in here and you're a freshman, many of uh, your lives have changed like crazy in the last year, hasn't it? Coming to school, leaving your hometown, leaving your family, kind of learning how to be more independent. If you're in here and you're a senior, you're about to enter about a, a five to 10 year season of drastic change, all right? Some of you are gonna move. Uh, you're going to maybe go to a different town, a different state. Some of you may even move to a different country. Some of you are gonna get married. Some of you are gonna have kids, right? I mean, it's, your life is going, I knew we'd get some chatter from that. <laughs> All right, but <laughs> a man wants to have kids. Okay. <laughs> so, but your life is going to change. And depending, listen, depending on how you are wired, 
Some of you are going to handle that really well, and some of you it's going to be tough because we all handle change differently. Some people handle change well, like you thrive on change. You thrive on things changing. It's constantly changing environment. And then some of you, it leads to anxiety. Anxiety is a huge issue. Some of you, it leads to anxiety. Anxiety leads to isolation. Isolation leads to depression. And usually that's just not a good, a good cycle. So with all the things in life that are changing, it is imperative that we as believers begin to focus and hone in on the things that never change because we find some truths in the word of God that never, ever, ever change. And it is because of those things that it's okay if everything else does. You with me? With all the chaos that may be swirling around your life and whatever's going on, if we will have faith and if we will trust and if we will focus in on the things that never change in God's word, then ultimately it will lead to better results in our life. It's kind of like, um, anybody here have a pillow they really like? A pillow like, it's your pillow? Like I have my pillow, I'm not kidding, I bought my pillow 15 years ago 15 years, I bought a Tempur-Pedic pillow. It is the same shape now as it was 15 years ago. It is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Like that thing is incredible, right? And um, I know, and you may be like this, but if, if you go on vacation, you go somewhere, you don't have your pillow, it takes me about two or three days for my neck to start hurting. And uh, when your neck hurts, it affects everything. Like. It literally, the pain in the neck is the worst thing that could ever happen. It affects every movement. It affects everything that you do. You can't do anything without feeling the pain in the neck. That's why we call things that we don't like a pain in the neck, all right, because they hurt. It's not fun. But what I found is that when I go somewhere, if I'm not flying somewhere, like we're just driving somewhere on vacation or going to a hotel or something, it doesn't matter what bed I sleep on. It doesn't matter if I sleep on a couch. It doesn't matter. If I have my pillow, everything's okay, Amen. Like as long as you have that pillow, as long as you take it, if I take it with me, then everything else can, can change it. No matter where I sleep, no matter what I do, I'm going to be okay. And that's kind of a silly example, but, but God tells us to hide his word in our heart. And if we will take his word with us, no matter what kind of storms brew around us, we will stand on firm footing, okay? So I want to share some things tonight that never changed. So in Colossians chapter one, I just want to prepare you guys because Colossians chapter one is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. It has one of my favorite verses, chapter one, verse 15 in it. And so I'm going to probably get a little fired up. I'm going to need you to get a little more excited um, tonight because uh, I'm really looking forward to, to teaching uh, through this uh, chapter. So we're going to spend most of our time on, on verse 15, but in, able to, in order to get us there, I, wanna, I want us to start in verse 9. So if you have your Bibles, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. The book of Colossians, of course, is written by Paul, written to the church at this town called Colossae, and um, it is mainly written to encourage them. It's written to, um, to encourage them to walk in the ways of the Lord and to be strengthened by him. And so here's what it says in verse 9. It says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. 
We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that, this is why, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Now, I don't know about you, but those are two things that I want to describe me. Like when people think about Blake Pitts, I want them to think about somebody who is worthy of the Lord and who pleases him in every way. When the Lord, when he looks down on me, I want to live a life that is worthy of him and that pleases him in every way. So if Paul is going to tell me how to accomplish this, he's got me, right? He's got my ear. And that's what he does. He tells us how to accomplish this. Look at what it says next. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. So we get this kind of cyclical reasoning from Paul that one thing leads to the next, which leads to the next. And so here's what he says. He says, if you wanna live a life that is worthy of the Lord, if you wanna live a life that pleases him, then you bear fruit in every good work. Now, what does that mean? Bearing fruit is talked about a lot in the New Testament. It basically means that we are the visible manifestation of what God is doing in your heart. That's what bearing fruit is, that you can see it, that it's visible in your life, what God is doing in your heart. And so Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, he puts some words to it. He says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. Now, here's the thing about that, is that, If I tell you I'm gonna be more patient, that doesn't just happen the next day, does it? Like, it takes some work, it takes some, there's a process that it takes when I I wanna be more patient or I wanna be more loving or I wanna be more kind, there's a process that takes place. And Paul tells us what that process is. He says, if you wanna bear fruit in every good work, then you need to grow in the knowledge of God and be strengthened with all of his power according to his glorious might. That's the process. That as we grow in the knowledge of God, we're strengthened by the Holy Spirit, and when we do that, we, we bear fruit. It is a, it's a process. It, it takes some time to be patient in everything. In fact, if you can say, Blake, I'm gonna be more patient, and the next day be perfectly patient in everything, I want you, you need to come up here and preach, you need to teach a class, you need to teach us how to do it, because it doesn't happen. That we have to grow in the knowledge of God. As we grow in the knowledge of God, it leads us to being strengthened by his power, which leads to bearing fruit. So what does Paul do next? If the first thing we have to do is to grow in the knowledge of God, what do you think he does? He begins to give us the knowledge of God, which leads us to Colossians chapter one, verse 15. Look at what it says. It says, he is, he is, who's he? Who's he? Jesus, all right, here we go. He is, make sure you're with me, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, this is good news, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This is good news because God's mysterious, yeah? Like, nobody's ever seen him, thank you. Nobody's ever seen him. Nobody's ever heard his audible voice for the most part. We have a few people in Scripture that have heard him, but for the most part, none of us have seen him. We've never heard him. He's mysterious, and so what? What Paul tells us is that we don't have to guess what God's like. That when we study the Son, that we understand more about the Father. That if you look at the life of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. And so something that was once unknowable 
is now knowable. So if you want to know what God's like, study Jesus. You study Jesus, you know the Father. And so the Gospels are super important, right? Because the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the four accounts of Jesus' life. And the more we study those, the more we know Jesus. And the more we know Jesus, the more we know who? The more we know God. Because he is the image of the invisible God. Now, if you're in Colossae at this point, and you're reading this letter, you're going, wait, Paul. The government's telling me that Caesar is the image of the invisible God. Because that's what they thought. The Romans thought that Caesar was God. And so they put statues of him up. They put pictures up everywhere. Because when people saw him, he was their God. And Paul puts that to rest for the church here in this town and says, no, no, no. Caesar is not the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so I want to give you a few characteristics of Jesus. Because we learn things about the Father through studying the Son. So what, when we study the Son, what does it tell us about God the Father? I want to give you a few attributes, a few things about Jesus that we see in the life of Jesus. We could study this every Thursday for the rest of our lives. All right? Every Thursday for the rest, we could talk about how the Son and His nature, like talk about His nature, talk about who He is. For the rest of our lives, I'm going to try to give you a few in about the next 15 minutes, all right? So I'm going to talk really fast. I talk really fast anyways, but I'm going to talk very fast, so you're going to have to listen even faster. Here we go. Number one, the first thing we learn about the Father through studying the life of the Son is that God is merciful, that he is full of mercy, so we're going to do a little storytelling here. I'm going to tell you some things about the life of Jesus, some stories from the life of Jesus that give us an example of his mercy. All right. In John chapter 8, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And there's a woman that is caught in the act of adultery. All right. They catch her. This isn't like they think maybe this is going on. Like They catch her in the act, and they grab her, and they bring her, probably half-dressed, right, out to Jesus, and they throw her at Jesus' feet. And they look at Jesus, and they say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says that we should stone her. What do you say? Jesus, man, I love He was just a, such a cool guy, right? Obviously. He bends down on one knee like this, and he begins to write in the sand. And we don't know what he was writing, all right? In fact, that's the first thing I'm going to ask Jesus when I get to heaven one day. Like numero uno, like people want to know all kinds of, like why is there suffering in the world? Like who killed JFK? Who's more talented, Michael Jordan or LeBron? Like there's all kinds of things that we want to ask God when we get there. I'm going to ask him what we were writing in the sand. Because we don't know. Like there's been speculation on what he was, what he was writing in the sand. Some people say that it was the sins of the, man, of the men standing around her. Some people have speculated that he was writing in the sand the names of the guys standing around her, waiting to stone her, who had actually slept with her. Woo! That's fun. I don't know what, he could have been drawing Teletubbies. I have no idea what he was doing, but nevertheless, Jesus looks at the men and he says, You who are without sin, you cast the first song. 
And it says from oldest to youngest, the men dropped their stones and left. The younger men followed the older men. They walked away and they left. And Jesus goes over to her. He picks this disgraced woman up and he says, where have they gone? That they don't condemn you and neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, here's the beauty of this. She was guilty. She was guilty. Like this wasn't a he said, she said. Like we're not sure. We saw her and Bobby go behind the barn and come out kind of doing this, but we're not really sure what happened. No, they caught her in the act of adultery. And in the face of the law that says that this woman should be condemned in the face of condemnation and death, Jesus extends mercy. She was guilty. She wasn't innocent. She was guilty. And what we learn about the father from watching the life of the son is that God is merciful. There's another example where Jesus is standing over Jerusalem. If you don't know, the nation of Israel with the Jews, Jerusalem's pretty, pretty significant, right? I mean, it was the place that God promised his people that it was gonna be their land. And so Jesus goes up on a mountain. He's overlooking Jerusalem. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And this, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you. And at this point, you're thinking, man, Jesus is about to go Sodom and Gomorrah on Jerusalem, right? Because everybody God has sent, they have killed, they have shamed, they have disgraced. Like every prophet they've killed, every one of them. And you think, man, what's Jesus going to do here? Look at what he says next. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under his wings, and you are not willing like, this is a far cry from the God who just wants to annihilate everything, right? Like, the thought of that, the thought of this God, that anything that moves, that sins against him, he wants to annihilate and destroy. Like, this is a far cry from that, isn't it? You've killed everybody I sent you, but how I long to draw you into myself. What we learn about the Father from studying the life and observing the life of the Son is that God is merciful Here's the second thing we learn, is that he is compassionate. He is compassionate. Uh, Jesus had few friends, right? He had his disciples that he did a lot of things with, but he had a couple of really good friends. So three of those really good friends or somebody named Mary, Martha, they were sisters, and their brother, you know who her brother is? Lazarus, very good. Very good. Mary, Martha, and Elias. They were his really, really good friends. Uh, he loved to go to their house. He loved to hang out with them. He would eat a meal with them. He would fellowship with them. But as things got more dangerous in, in Jesus' life, as the Pharisees were trying to kill him, Jesus began to spend more time away from Bethany because Bethany was really close to Jerusalem. And so there was one day when Jesus was teaching on the outskirts of, of Jerusalem, kind of far away, and Lazarus got sick. And I'm not talking about just kind of sick, like sick, sick. Like he's going to die if something doesn't happen in the next couple of days sick. And so Martha sends word to Jesus and says, listen, the one who you love, Lazarus, is going to die. He's really sick. We need you to come. 
which makes sense because Mary and Martha had seen them, him heal like all kinds of people he didn't know, right? People who like touched the hem of his garment as he was walking by, like he healed that person. Surely he's gonna heal one of his best friends. He's not gonna let him die. And so she sends word and Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick. And you know what he does? He doesn't get on that next horse and leave. He stays where he's at for two days. And you're thinking, what? Like, I'm sure Mary and Martha are at home going, one eye on their brother who is wasting away, the other eye on the door just waiting for the moment that Jesus is going to walk in. But for two days, Jesus doesn't come. And ultimately, Lazarus dies. And Mary and Martha was not happy. In fact, go back and read it. The first thing that both of them say to him is, if you would have been here, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Very raw, kind of emotional moment for both of them. If you wouldn't have been here, if you would have been here, they wouldn't have died. And so Jesus says, take me to the tomb. And so they go to the tomb. And something extraordinary happens. Jesus, who, I mean, knew what he was about to do. Right? We know the story, right? Like, Jesus knew what he was about to do. Jesus knew that he was about to start a party in that town like nobody has ever seen. But he goes to the tomb with Mary and Martha. They're weeping. The Jews that came, they're weeping. And it says that he was deeply moved in spirit. And Jesus, who knew what he was about to do, weeps. Just weeps. Enters into the grief of the people he loved. I mean, he knew what was about to happen. Why would he cry? Other than the fact that he entered into the grief, it wasn't about Lazarus. He wasn't crying over Lazarus. He was crying because of the hurt of his friends. And what we learn about the Father from looking at the life of Jesus is that God is compassionate. He's compassionate. So Jesus is compassionate, he is merciful, and number three is this, is that he is omnipotent. Now, that is a big word that basically just means all-powerful. He's all-powerful. That he has power over everything. There's nothing that does not bow to his will. All right, so you say, well, if he's all-powerful, what's he all-powerful over? What are the things that Jesus is all-powerful over? Let me give you a few. The first one is this, he's powerful over nature. He's powerful over nature. Luke chapter eight, Jesus is riding in a boat with his disciples and he was asleep, like asleep. And I'm not talking about like a little bit of a storm, like they thought they were gonna die in the storm. Like wind blowing, rain sideways, they were bailing water out of the boat. They thought they were gonna die. And Jesus is in the boat asleep. And they go over to him and they're like, hey, Jesus. And Jesus actually wakes up and he chastises them for their lack of faith. And he says, listen, you know I'm here. I've told you why I'm here. We're not gonna die here. We're not gonna die. So he gets up and he speaks and the wind and the waves obey him. Stillness. 
Now, I've always read that story, and we kind of hear it nowadays. I'm like, yeah, okay. All that changed when I lived through a tornado. Anybody ever lived through a tornado? I'm not talking about like, like high winds. I'm talking about an actual tornado. Um, two years ago, uh, on Easter Sunday, a tornado came through Seneca and skirted my house. About a half a block from our house, it was bad. I mean, our neighborhood lost lost thousands of trees. My in-laws live about a block away from us, and every house around them had to be torn down. I mean, this thing was rough. And to think of the power, I wish I could tell you this. In fact, I will tell you one story, and this is kind of, this isn't, we got time, right? We got time. Um, <laughs> that, that day, actually, Easter Sunday, we came home from church, and on our back porch, we had gotten this old porch swing, and we had redone it, and we painted it orange, right? It's, it's really cool. Sitting out on, on, on the porch, and so we put it up, we hung it, and did all this kind of stuff. And so my wife had this thin little blanket that was made in Africa, that we got in Africa, went on a mission trip there. And so she got it, and she folded it up, and she laid it over the porch swing. And so that night, of course, the tornado rumbled through there. <clears throat> and so we go outside the next day. And I mean, you're talking about destruction. We had, um, had to replace our roof. We had a tree in our pool. And we go outside, and all of the porch furniture had been slammed up against our fence. The trampoline that we had for our kids in the yard had been thrown three doors down. It was in the yard of our neighbor three doors down. They actually had a trampoline in their yard that had flown out and was wrapped around a telephone pole. It was crazy. Destruct things everywhere. And that blanket, I kid you not, was folded and sitting right where my wife had put it on that porch swing. Now, you can explain that away. Now, we can explain it away. Right, we saw the wind kind of held it on there. But listen, when you walk through something like that, you see little splashes of Jesus in there that lets you know, hey, I'm in control of all this. Like I control the wind and the waves. I control everything. But to think that something like that tornado could come barreling through and by the words of Jesus' mouth, he can just talk and it was, it would be still. He is omnipotent over nature. He is omnipotent over disease, right? We could go through and just, just pick one, like pick a miracle that Jesus, where he speaks or where he touches or where he prays or where he says the words and people are healed. One that comes to mind is when he healed 10 lepers. Remember the story? Like he heals 10 lepers and they all go away and only one came back to thank him. You remember the story? Like 10% of the people that he changed their lives came back to thank him. I think that is a commentary that we could probably use to talk about uh, how grateful we are sometimes um, for what God is doing uh, in our life. But he is omnipotent over disease. He is omnipotent over death. Over death. We just talked about Lazarus. There's another story in Mark chapter 5 where the ruler of the synagogue, his daughter was sick. And so Jesus goes, and they're like, Jesus like, listen, she's asleep. And they're like, Jesus, no. Like, he is, she's dead. And Jesus goes over there, even though they were mocking him, and raises this daughter, his daughter, from the dead. He is omnipotent over death. Last one. He's omnipotent over demons. 
Later on in, um, in Colossians chapter 1, it talks about how Jesus is, is all-powerful over the seen and everything that is unseen. And one of the things that is unseen is, is demons. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus runs into a guy that's filled with demons. And he would cut himself and he would, do some, he, would do, he would do different things to harm himself, like these demons inside of him. And so the demons spoke to Jesus. And they, his, Jesus asked him his name. And he said, my name is Legion, because Legion means many. It means he wasn't possessed by one demon. He was possessed by lots of demons. And the demon said something to him. This is so interesting. Listen to what the demon said. The demon said, Jesus, have you come to destroy us? Not, hey, you want to fight? Like, have you come to destroy us? The demons always have it right. Like, the demons understood that they were no match for him, that he is all-powerful over the demonic. And that's why the dualism of Hollywood is a joke, right? This whole idea of, oh, there's good and there's evil, and good's going to fight evil, and hopefully good will win, that is a complete farce because this word tells us that one day, one day, God's going to bring all of his enemies into one place. And with the word of his mouth, he's going to say, I am, and he's going to consume all of his enemies. That's it. Like the quickest battle in history. I am. People, oh, Armageddon, Armageddon. It's going to be quick and pounds. The only thing that's going to make it longer is how long he draws it out. Like, him, I am. It's the only way it'll be, it'll be longer. Quickest battle in history. Because Jesus is all-powerful over demons. So we see, through studying the life of the Son, that he is the image of the invisible God. And what we learn about God from observing the life of his image is that he is merciful, he is compassionate, and he is all-powerful. And you know what? Here's the good news. He is still as merciful, as powerful, and as compassionate today as he was when he walked around on this earth. That has not changed like, he is still all-powerful today. He is still ruling over disease. He is still ruling over death. He is still ruling over nature. Like, nothing happens without his approval. Nothing. You say, well, well Blake, why then are there wars? Like, if God's so powerful, why is there wars? Why are, is there disease? Why is there death? Why do people suffer? If God is powerful and can control it all, why didn't he do away with that? I've got an answer for you. You know what it is? Here you go. Write it down. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why those things happen. But here's what I do know. I know that we grow and we learn not through knowing everything that's going to happen, but we grow and we learn through trusting him when we don't know when, what's going to happen. Like it's not our job to know everything about God's will and to know everything God's going to do because we don't grow that way. We grow when we, don't, when, when we trust him when we don't know what's going to happen. 
So I don't know why bad things happen. I don't know why people suffer. I don't know why there are wars. I don't know why there's, I don't know. But there is one that knows. And you know what? We're growing and we're learning as we figure that out. And one day he'll show us. Jesus is still compassionate today. He enters, if you're hurting today, he enters into your grief. In fact, there's no one who knows sorrow and grief more than Jesus. He's called in his word, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And Jesus is still merciful today. And this is what I want you to hear today. That hasn't changed and it's never gonna change. He is still as merciful today as the day he did not condemn the woman caught in adultery. So don't come in here, don't come in here with your, like you don't know what I've done. Like you don't know how bad I've been. Like you don't know, I say I'm a Christian and I still do this and I can't seem to beat it. And I just don't feel like God can forgive me. Where in the word do you ever get the idea that he wouldn't be merciful to you? He was merciful to the woman caught in adultery. He washed the feet of a man who betrayed him. He was merciful on Peter when he denied him. He was merciful to Paul even though Paul killed people who served him. And I can guarantee you that your resume is not as bad as any of those people. He was merciful on them. He will be merciful to you when we come to him in sincere repentance. He is merciful. He knows what you've done. He knows what you're gonna do. And he still sent Jesus as a sacrifice for your sins past present and future. There's never been a time, listen, there's never ever been a time where Jesus said, when you get your act together, I'll save you. Never. And so I know there have been some of you who have come in here with baggage today. Things that are weighing you down, things that are keeping you from worship. You're saved, right? You're saved. You believe in him. He saved you, but you have no intimacy because of your sin. And you're carrying that around and it's keeping you from ministering. It's keeping you from feeling his presence. It's keeping you from truly doing what God has called you to do. And today, we have a God who that while we were yet sinners, he still pursued us. And what we learn about God the Father from observing the life of the Son is that God is merciful and He's still pursuing you right now. Let's pray. Father, I know that sometimes coming to FCA on Thursdays because I've been there can just become a routine. Like it's, it's something that we, we do because we're supposed to, we do to see our friends, we do because there's good fellowship. And what we don't realize is that 
the word that is given, the worship that is, is given, that it only penetrates us as much as our soul was ready to take. And so many times we come in here and we're cold and our hearts are hard and the word is not able to penetrate. So God, I pray right now that you will knock the hardness off of our hearts. That the reality of your mercy, of your power, and of your compassion will hit us in a new and fresh way today. And it's not through the words that I've said today, that is through the Spirit of God. I can get up here, Lord, I know. I can get up here with persuasive words, passionately proclaim the truth, and it will fall on deaf ears if your spirit does not change us. So God, we ask for the spirit now to come, to change our hearts and to change our minds and to allow us to know you more. God, if we need to confess sin today, or confession is how we we regain intimacy with you. Repentance is how we walk in your word and walk in your way. So God, change us now. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> the time that we spend now as we're about to sing, it's not meant just to sing and have a good time worshiping. It's meant for us to respond. It's meant for us to reflect. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna sing and we're gonna reflect and we're gonna respond. There's some people that are sitting up here. These people have been praying for you all week. They have prayed for you tonight and they would love to pray with you now. So if there's something in your life that you need to confess, if there's something you need prayer for, that's why they're here to pray with you. If you just need to come down here and kneel by yourself and pray, do that. But let's do work. That's what this time is for. It's not meant to wrap up the service and head to the house. So let's be faithful to do what God has called us to do and to respond to him in a way that's glorifying to him now. Let's stand.